Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons, your most favoriteish show about D&D that records Monday at, you know, 1 or t- noon on Eastern Time, 9 or 10 Pacific Time in the U.S. with just two hosts. Who are but us. it's your favorite, with all those caveats, yes. And, of course, your favorite co-host, uh, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, how's it going? My favorite co-host, Sean, I am uh, the equivalent of running on fumes, which I hear is not actually a thing you can do. Uh, I tried to buy fumes the other day. No, no, no dice. Uh, but yeah, I had to work I all week long. fumes were cheaper than... Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you just... I'm in the process of moving and, and I wailed my head against a iron or a steel uh, I-beam. <laughs> and I was fine yesterday. To, I have a splitting headache today. You get see oh that? yeah that's that's right there. wow that's the good stuff oh right my there god we've got our thumbnail yeah. for the show already this knocked this myself <laughs> not knocked myself flat out it oh, was great so I, I have you're super tired i'm probably concussed yeah. so we're it's gonna be I great steps that aren't to code like whoever built this house the steps have a, a too low an overhang so i just kind of like lower my head every time i go up the stairs but whenever i'm carrying something heavy I have to maintain, like, you know, I'm trying to maintain good posture as I carry it. And I, of course, forget. And then I'm slamming my head against that thing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, like, can't drop what I have. And so it's like I have to keep going or retreat. But either way, it's like the worst. So I'm sorry to hear that, Sean. I, I hope you are not too concussed. And that's the trauma of mastering dungeons doesn't uh, mm. knock you out. You just let it us could know. be the best show ever. Who okay. knows? Yeah. You, you apparently know my name. So we're if at I least start past slurring that. my words. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So speaking of slurring words, let's get to our listener corner. Uh, we got lots of stuff. We're going to have to leave some out and push some off for next week. But thank you to everyone who is reaching out to us via our Discord, uh, Patreon, YouTube, Mastodon, X slash Twitter slash whatever that is, real life <laughs> conventions. And this week for the first time, LinkedIn. That's right. But first we go to Mark via Mastodon. I've been thinking about something you mentioned in your discussion about the DMG. It was something to the effect of why didn't they mention published adventures when they publish so many adventures? That got me wondering about how much influence a business strategy might have on game design and writing. What do you think the authors of the 2014 DMG thought that the D&D product strategy was going to be when they were writing it? I'm sure they didn't expect 5e to be as successful as it has been. Were they already planning on releasing one campaign per year or planning for multiple contingencies? And did their plans influence how the DMG was written, do you think? If they all if they already had the next several years planned out, then it seems a missed opportunity not to prime their customers for that in the way that the DMG was structured. Or maybe they weren't sure what was going to happen <laughs> and were writing a book in a way that would still work if the edition bombed and they didn't release much of anything else after the core books. Or maybe they weren't thinking about the future at all. By the same token, how is the product business strategy Wizards is taking now going to influence the way that the 2014 books are are written? Whew, Such a great good question. question. Lots of stuff there. Yeah. So I'm gonna let you I'm gonna let you start while I grab a drink there. Oh man. Uh it's a fantastic question. I, I think the more that we've been looking at this DMG, the more that at least I feel 
like this is a book that's trying to be open to a lot of potential ways that people may be interacting with the game. And and having talked to a lot of designers that were part of the core team, I don't think they had uh, knowledge of how 5e was going to be received. They were hoping it was really good. They felt good about it. You know, it was a huge pod uh, playtest. They could tell that the playtest was involving a lot of people. But um, but no, they didn't know that it would be this success- successful. I don't think anybody in RPGs knew that an RPG could be as successful as 5e has been. Uh, like it seemed that that was an impossible tier, <laughs> if you will. Um, but yeah. but that said, I think that they were thinking the game was a little more open and loose. And they were it, what I have heard is the strategy at Wizards was we're making this great game. Management is not breathing down our back around it so we can make the books that we want to make. Because the corporate strategy is sell T-shirts and licensed materials and video games and things like that and make your money that way, sort of leveraging the brand, leveraging those kinds of things. It, it's not so heavily about what the role-playing game is, and the role-playing can just do what it does sort of lightly in the background. So therefore, it's very flexible and open, and you can do whatever you want with it, and maybe less about. And, and if you think initially, you know, one published adventure a year to just keep the buzz going, right, would have been was what they were kind of thinking. Yeah, yeah and if they don't expect tons of new players to come in like what happened with 5e then you can create a dmg that's more for experienced game masters that's why we see the dmg being not hey brand new game master here's how you run the table but what we see is a book of tables right a book of inspiration for dms that already know what they're doing so when it became so popular they had to rely on other ways to teach new game masters, which was uh, live streams that they weren't even producing themselves or maybe were, but uh, that became its thing. And that's why it's going to be interesting going into 2024. Mm -hmm. When we see a revised DMG, are we going to see more? We know that more people are coming in, so let's teach you how to DM. Or is it going to be taking what's already there and just expanding on it? Uh, however they do, Wizards and, and Hasbro and D&D's marketing and social engagement team will need to be very careful and be very upfront about helping people. Um, and that, that's very hard when the company that you are working for is constantly getting into trouble with with its fans <laughs> or with the general public right because what we would love to do as say you and i were running dnd yeah. at wizards we would love to just go on to social media and say hey check this out check this link out do this hey here are some tips but what happens is every time we do that we get oh where are the pinkertons <laughs> mm-hmm. and that not only doesn't help new players or new dms it actively works against that because it distracts people from learning the actual game yeah so it it, it's going to be a brand new issue when they release these books and how they're going to use them to support what we're expecting to be new players coming still coming into the game and and the reality is there's nobody out there who knows whether when this book comes out is there going to be a um, 
huge growth of 5e or is there going to be a huge decline there isn't a person out there that knows the answer to that neither at wizards or outside <laughs> nobody has i don't even know that people even have the raw materials with which to formulate knowledge of that we simply don't know and, and I, I haven't met anybody who has any knowledge about that right and so what should the strategy be to grow the base hugely to plan for a contraction and nobody has any clue. Right. And so you just <laughs> do what you can and off you go. So, you know, I don't know when it comes to this next series of books, you know, is the DMG being written with growth in mind or stability or uh, <laughs> just write the best yeah. DMG you can. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So even if the business side gives the creative side and mandate for what to create who knows if that's going to actually meet the needs or not if the creative team will be able to do what they're asked or not maybe they completely fail to meet the mandates but actually end up making a good book accidentally we yeah. just don't know no telling yeah and, and 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 sometimes that can muck with things right if corporate says make this game you know primarily for new players or corporate says um, you know, we really need to get the invested player to spend more. I don't know, what do you do with that, right? And those might seem very reasonable things for corporate to say. Who knows if corporate's even saying anything, right? So it's just the best editions, though, have seemed to be ones where corporate just let people design, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, for sure. All right, we have the next question from Toast Milk via the Patreon Discord. A question that's been burning in my mind since you started the review of the DMG has been to hear your opinion on whether Watsi's focus for the 50th anniversary of D&D should have been revising the DM's guide or making it into something more robust and becoming more helpful for us newer, less experienced DMs than the loose collection of tools that the 2014 version seems to be. Instead of uh, having the public focus on revising a popular rule system that many are happy with, I know a revised DMG is coming in 2024, and the business answer to my inquiry, the PHB is for players and therefore a larger audience to sell to, but curious to hear your opinions if you put the sales factor aside, if the game in WotC would have been better served and generate more excitement by using the 50th anniversary to roll out a DM's guide that addresses the shortcomings mm -hmm. that you and others have pointed out, included other useful tools that have developed over the decade of 5e play, and craft one of the best DM guides the company has produced. I say that because part of my frustration with the 1D&D playtest has been its focus on player options and generating excitement on that end with little guidance or consideration for helping DMs implement changes or make job their jobs more intuitive and easier to manage. Ooh, that's an yeah. excellent question, too. <laughs> you know, Sean, it's, it's really yeah. hard to separate that business side, and I know the question is asking to do that, but it is so yeah. fundamental to every consideration. Um, but the game would benefit from more advice of all sorts. And in a world without money, where one could just make the best game possible, then that advice would not just be an updated DMG, but also player's handbook that really worked more closely, more in tandem with the DM side. And you can see 5e tries to do that, right? It has tries to have, like, we'll talk about downtime. 
tries to have a little downtime in the player's handbook, a little downtime in the DMG. But what it never does is have that conversation of, hey, here's what your DM is going to be doing. Here's how to dovetail into that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really achieve that balance. And so ideally, both the PHB and the DMG would be working together, the PHB preparing players for what the DM's doing, getting them all working together. And there could be a future state where the game really does achieve this, but it's probably gonna take several iterations to get there, uh, 80 maybe. <laughs> uh, and in that moneyless world, we'd also want lots of guides. Like if you look at how D&D took Stormwreck Isle and made all these videos of how to run the start and how to develop from there and all these different you know, pieces that, that, that add to it, I, I th those seem to me really cool. You know, I'm not a new DM and it's hard for me to put on my DM, DM hat, but they seem very useful. Are they getting watched a lot by new DMs? I don't know. But if they are, then that could exist for every product, right? Every product could come with these kinds of walkthroughs. Um, but we don't live in that world, right? And, and worse than that, we live in a world where Wizards is playing a game of chess with fans, kind of like you said, Sean, right? Where every step you take is judged and and is a challenge and is difficult if you launch a new edition history is very clear that fans are going to rebel against you and it has to be incredibly good or you lose lots of players if you slightly modify the game then all kinds of people are saying why don't you give me a new edition you didn't do enough i don't like these changes they don't go far enough uh, they're arbitrary and they're just it's really difficult the only way to overcome this is to have your rules be so good that everybody has to shut up and <laughs> agree it's good and 5e did that i mean there were so many 5e naysayers at the beginning of 5e that finally had to go okay i guess it is doing well you know i guess people do like this <laughs> and there's still people who will tell you that yeah. 5e doesn't have a good rules system or that oh it's overrated uh, and it's amazing it's the best rpg by so many measures and yet you know it still has to contend with that criticism so um yeah i don't know what do you think yeah. sean well, I think that that chess is is a great analogy because not only do you have to do what Teo said and think about those issues, you have to think if you create a beginner's guide, you are automatically telling experienced players this is not for you, even if it would be good for them. So to create something that teaches the basics of role playing would be super handy for mm. people just coming into the field. But you're cutting your market by putting out something that points in that direction. Yet that's what people might need. And the DMs Guild, in a lot of ways, could be something that fits that, uh, fits the needs of the market. Mm. But then you need to have a way to point people in the right direction to the right products. Mm -hmm. So instead of having the beginner's guide, you could say, here is Stormwreck Isle. Over here, if you want the really basic version, for a $5 PDF, you can get the super streamlined explanation intro to it. Therefore, you're not wasting pages in that in the actual book doing it. People that don't want the beginner's guide don't need to buy it, but it's there. But then that's hard, too, because you have to market it. You have to mm -hmm. communicate well. You have to point people to it from a place where they will already be. 
You have to be six steps ahead, like in a chess game. So you're aware that you're going to have this when you publish this. So you can point people to it and the link will be there and the link will be correct. And you will have the price and you have the market, right? All of that needs to happen. And it's just outside of the realm of large businesses to be able to do that well. Yeah. Because every part of the company has to communicate with the other, be on the same page, understand deadlines, understand uh, the business needs and the financial needs and the personnel needs of, of all of the different. And it's just, it's so mm -hmm. hard to do. So, yeah, you understand. It, could, could all of this be done? <laughs> yes. Will it? Probably not. Probably not. And, and I do think that the, the, you know, the, this DMG, the 2014 DMG, it tries to inspire through a lot of ideas and concepts. And that is mm -hmm. a throwback to the AD&D DMG, which a lot of us think of very fondly with a lot of nostalgia for how it did that for us. And I think that is neat, but I think that today's audience wants more how-to guides. And it is possible to write a how-to mm -hmm. guide that is both good for new players and for existing players, right? I think of like Mike Shea's products. One of the reasons we mention them off on the show is because they do that. They please an expert DM and a new DM pretty equally because it's common sense material and approaches that can benefit almost anybody. And I think the DMG could have more of that. So maybe that's kind of my, my distilled answer. There's all this larger reality, but I think that there is a way that you can kind of know that you're not gonna really lose. Like, yes, you're inspiring, but you're giving enough tips that anybody of any expert expertise could uh, could enjoy. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that question, um, Toast Milk. We have Emil Lin via LinkedIn. So Emil uh, said, I'm a huge fan of the Grim Hollow Monster Grimoire. I've spent many hours enjoying this book. I looked you up out of curiosity and imagine my surprise when I found out you have a background in technical writing. Mm. I would love to hear about your transition. So I actually get this question a lot, which is why I asked Emil's uh, permission to post it from LinkedIn to here. And it's important to remember that game writing is, for the most part, technical writing. And it's not only technical writing, it's a very specific kind of technical writing. Uh, you're working with both new material and customers and existing material and customers when you're writing a game, especially if you're using an existing system. So you always have to keep that in mind as we were just talking about, right? Brand new people, brand new players, existing uh, DMs, existing players. When you're creating rules, you are also at the same time in game writing encouraging other people's creativity with those rules but not so much creativity that they can move outside of the rules and create their own thing because you need those rules as the framework for what you're building so when i'm hiring a role-playing game writer a role-playing game designer what i'm looking for are people who can write clearly first and foremost and some of the clearest writing that you're ever going to see is technical writing mm -hmm. because it by definition has to be clear. So if I can tell that you know what you are saying 
you know what you need to say, you've thought it through, then you can actually hit the mark by writing clearly and by expressing the things you need to express in a way that anyone can understand. Then I know that you can take the next step and be creative and help mm. other people be creative. Uh, so when I'm looking for people, I am looking for that, that, that by, by reading the words you've written, I know that you know what you're doing. And so therefore I can trust you to say it in a way that will allow me to know what I'm doing. Uh, and that's why technical writing uh, so easily translates into game writing. Uh, that's that's yeah. my answer. Yeah. So thank I you for it. the question, Emil. Love it. We have Tulku via Mastodon who says, love the show. Just wanted to mention that Keys from the Golden Vault could be an example of the Agents of X campaign. Maybe that differentiates a bit more from the thing of many parts as the different missions in the Agent of X are only related in the sense that they were given by an organization and ver with very little uh, overarching plot. So, Yeah, the Great point, right? And and absolutely. Um, and in fact, a lot of the adventure books that have one shots in them, as Keys does, could work really well that way. Candle Key, Radiant Citadel, even Yawning Portal is a little bit like that, right? And and if you just added a little bit of a wrapper to it, you'd really have that that Agents of X, right? You know, like, hey, Candle Keep is hiring you to carry out all these separate missions. Uh, Radiant Citadel, you know, it's a hub, and we need you to do all these various things. Uh, yawning portal, you know, hey, someone who's, you know, sending you to all through through the yawning portal to all these different locations. Um, and even I Spire Peak, right? It starts that way where it's like the job board, right? And so then then only over time do you see some relationships between them. So yeah, that's that's a neat, neat catch. Okay. And last question from Biotic Hamster via our Patreon Discord. I wonder what your thoughts are on why horror seems to be so popular in D&D. Mm -hmm. A couple weeks ago, James Intracasso mentioned this topic on the show. He brought up the fact that even in Curse of Strahd, once you start fighting the wolves, you suddenly remember how powerful you are, stripping away the illusion of the horror that the setting, uh, that the, setting the game is uh, trying to present. 5e seems to me to be a game that's all about power fantasy. Characters blinded? No biggie. We'll take a rest. No time for a rest? How about a quick spell to remove it? Characters dead? Revivify fixes that. No revivify? Cast gentle repose and take them to the temple. Resurrection, resurrection magic can be had for a cost. Heaven knows there's no shortage of gold in all those bags of holding. But horror is about making people feel powerless, right? And yet so many D&D adventures seem to insist on including horror elements. The upcoming Fandelverum Below is a, uh, remakes the classic vanilla D&D adventure into a cosmic horror adventure. The most popular adventure for 5e is Curse of Strahd, a horror-themed one. Out of the Abyss, Tomb of Annihilation, Descent into Avernus, Icewind Dale are all arguably horror-based campaigns. And third-party companies seem to be disproportionately uh, supporting horror-based content too, such as Sean's employer, Ghostfire Gaming, which makes admittedly really awesome content all around the genre. Still, I can't help but feel like horror and the 5e system are fundamentally misaligned. 
Wouldn't horror fans be better served by a different system? And wouldn't 5e be better served by more content in different genres? Mm. And ultimately, what drives everyone to produce so much horror content for 5e? Uh, yeah, we've had this question a few times, mm -hmm. and I feel like I've discussed it to the point where <laughs> I am now just repeating myself, even though I don't know if I've ever discussed it necessarily here. We have now a new thread in our Discord, Patreon Discord just popped up to discuss this. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let Teos take over for just a second. But the first thing you need to know is define your terms. What do you mean by horror? If your idea of horror is Friday the 13th slasher films, then we're going to have one discussion. If it's cosmic horror, Lovecraftian, you can't know the horror that's out there. If you do know it, you'll you'll go crazy. Uh, is Dracula horror or is Twilight horror <laughs> or is both? Is it jump scares or is it heredity? Are you trying to unsettle the players or are you trying to unsettle their characters so that they can role play being unsettled? Uh, all of those questions come into this discussion. Okay, Teos, go ahead. So, yeah, this was super fascinating, even though it's come up a lot. I, I saw this in sort of what may be a new light, at least for me. And what I thought was, you know, I don't think people actually want a horror campaign. And Tomb of Annihilation came up, which I don't think is a horror campaign for, for a number of reasons. It's a pulp kind of fun Indiana Jones type thing more than anything else. And But it is lethal. And one of the things that's interesting is very few people say, the reason I love Tomb of Annihilation was because it was super lethal and my character died. That was awesome. No. In fact, the lethality is one of the most problematic aspects of it that people try to tweak so it doesn't mess them up too much because they're loving everything else about it. But they might be drawn to it for it, right? The the idea of it's like we say this whole time, like, oh, it's a super challenging adventure. It's sort of like metal bands will always be like, we're coming out with a heavier sound on this album. You're like, I don't know. The last one was pretty heavy. I don't know what you're doing. But I think just saying that is like the sales item. And we want to believe that we want that. We want to believe that we want a horror experience that's horrifying. But reality is we want to play powerful characters doing powerful things. I don't care what the genre is in D&D. And D&D &D seems to work just fine. And one of the questions I asked in the Patreon Discord was, you know, have you played a horror campaign where it didn't really have these elements? And was that bad? And I didn't hear anyone say it was bad. Like, I think that we're actually perfectly fine with the idea that we should be scared, but we're actually not scared. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, I don't know if horror is supposed to be scary, except for the jump scares. <laughs> which you can't well i mean you can do it at the table right you can talk well quiet men talk real loud <laughs> and everyone jumps and haha jump scare and is that what you want is that right what you want in the game and i don't think many people do um so i think it's more about mystery right it's it's more that gothic horror that i think that mm. we're talking about but even the gothic horror is not horror you know you go back and read the original gothic novels mm -hmm. i think the castle of otranto is considered like the first mm -hmm. one and it's really just about secret passages and mysterious people which we get in DD anyway right right uh D, D itself is sort of a gothic game in in that sense i think that where 
horror can come in is is where you really want to have that feeling of hopelessness every long turn every every turn could be a wrong turn um one false move and you know there could be a problem which <clears throat> we truly get in other games right call of cthulhu or anything that's using a cthulhu type mythos generally works better because the characters are very fragile and so a wrong turn can truly be a wrong turn and we know that, and we and we come in accepting that. And, and and I mean, every time I've played Call of Cthulhu, I treat my character like a disposable thing, and and as an experience, not as campaign progression or something like that. And now I've never played a very long Call of Cthulhu. Well, I kind of I played one long Call of Cthulhu campaign, but in general, they're one shots, and and that's the most fun is because probably I will die in some way, and it's about the storytelling of it. But D&D is, when we do D&D in horror, we may say we want that, but we often don't. And, and so I think that the answer to this question is that it sells really well because we're attracted to those elements as concepts. And then what we actually want is to be superheroes. And D&D delivers that in spades. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. The, the most angry that I see players at the table, whether I'm running the game or playing in the game or observing the game, is when characters feel powerless. Yeah is when the players know that this clock is ticking and they realize we can't stop it. Yeah. We're, I've looked through my character sheet. I've looked through my spell list. I've looked at everything I have and there's nothing I can do yeah. to stop it. That's when people get mad. That's when players get angry. I want to uh, talk about that. In my experience over many years. Yeah. Just really quickly, the opposite side, because I can hear Graham Ward on our, on our discord already. Uh, but because he runs really good horror campaigns yeah. and I've been in a horrorish mm-hmm. D&D um, game for our adventure with him. And I know he, he does this really well, but you can run great horror experiences with D&D if you develop those capabilities and work with your players to have that. But it takes a lot of work and knowledge uh, and it's hard to write. And so most D&D experiences aren't providing you that. But it is possible. You certainly can. It's just not what's usually available, right? And that's why Rime of the Frostmaiden does not give you that, even though the marketing may have sounded like we were in for some amazing horror experience and we're going to, you know, live the thing version of D&D. Now, you know, you're rescuing Chewingas as one of your first quests. Like, they're cute and cuddly and it's silly. And like, <laughs> horrified yet, Sean? <laughs> yeah. I am horrified for sure. My day is just all horror as I'm trying to create <laughs> games. But and so the question is why? Why do people make these horror get, try to make these mm-hmm. horror RPGs or dark? Because it's popular. Mm-hmm. Because it's because it's really really popular. My wife and I went and saw Oppenheimer this past week and all of the previews were horror tinged mm-hmm. things from Disney's Haunted Mansion to a new Exorcist movie. And my wife looked at me and said, why? We're here watching Oppenheimer, sort of a historical movie. Mm-hmm. Why is why am I seeing all these horror previews? And I'm like, because it's the most popular genre out there mm-hmm. right now. And so everybody wants, you know, it's it's a popular experience. I just don't know if role-playing games, for the most part, deliver that experience as well as other types of media yeah agreed yep 
but it, it is definitely a hot topic. And if you are a patron of the show, you can jump onto the Patreon Discord and you can have that discussion with people who are very vehement about speaking to the topic. Now let's get into a little bit of news, shall we? The first News being, Wizards of the Coast has released the system reference document into the Creative Commons for Spanish, French, Italian, and German language users. I know that is something that's been near and dear to your heart, Teos. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. We had heard they were going to do this, uh, but it's one of those things, you know, there have been a number of things of, well, we intend to do this. Well, will they? And here it is. It's out. And it's sort of funny because the, the write-up, which was on the D&D community update page, uh, said, um, you know, it's we are bringing this, but it's like, no, as in like, it's here. <laughs> the links are active. Um, it is right. really hard to find anywhere else. So you kind of have to go to the community page. There's a link in our show notes. Uh, and you can get English, French, Italian, German, and Spanish, the SRD. Uh, super, super cool. Um, now, it is worth noting that it, this is in the Creative Commons, not the open gaming license, which I thought was interesting. Um, won't generally impact most creators, but if you were doing something like I want to write a Spanish language product that uses coupled press um, uh, material, then you would technically have to do your own translation, but I guess could look at the SRD for that. It's a little confusion, you know, but there could be some corner cases where the OGL is better than the Creative Commons. Usually, as I've written and, uh, and talked about in videos on this subject, uh, you would generally want to use the Creative Commons these days. Um, but but that is the only limitation is if you're trying to use OGL material from some other publisher, then you'd need to use an OGL product and license. And technically, you would need to use the English SRD, but you could probably pull the translations from the Creative Commons. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, That's great. I do and as you know, in our show notes, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, as you know, in our show notes, uh, that these can be used as sort of a basic rule system. Um, so we don't have a a set of basic rules in these languages like you could download, but you can use this as a basic rule set if you need to. Yeah. And I mean, that's the remaining piece that I really want. It's something that when I interviewed Kyle, uh, I asked Kyle Brink about this and, and, and for this, I still do want to see the basic rules, A, promoted more, just plain old promoted more in English. But also these translations are basically the basic rules. Let's put it out there so that people can get a more accessible a window into the game and 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 start playing D&D without feeling like they have to pirate it or spend you know, more money than they can afford to spend. Um, so I, I hope that maybe that would be around the corner. We shall see. Next, is it possible that we'll get a D&D movie sequel? Anything's possible, but it was discussed because comicbook.com reported on an article in Variety that profiled Paramount Pictures CEO Brian Collins. Collins discussed several projects that received critical acclaim but were disappointing at the box office. So therefore, he didn't rule out making a D&D movie sequel, but says it needs to be cheaper to make. Um, his quote is, even a star's ability to make audiences swoon isn't always enough to guarantee that a movie will make money. Babylon, an epic about the silent movie era, collapsed at the box office when Paramount released it last December, despite starring Brad Pitt. 
while Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves will end up losing money, even though Chris Pine led this ensemble cast. Robbins isn't abandoning the idea of more Dungeons and Dragons, though if there's a sequel, he says, we've got to figure out a way to make it for less. And that's interesting because I'm wondering if there was an increase in sales of books mm -hmm. of merchandise after the release of the movie so even if there was a loss at the movie level if it did act as a marketing vehicle that did increase sales enough that it might be worth it to make another sequel to see if you can continue that uh, upsur upturn in sales yeah, and the answer, one answer, uh, which we'll talk about later, seems to be that yes, it did increase sales. Um, like the player's handbook, maybe like like by a thousand units, uh, minimum of a thousand units per week. Um, but the question becomes, is that overall? And it also launched new products, right? They had uh, comic books, and oh, look, I've got one here. Uh, this guy, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Things like this. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's all new stuff they got to sell uh, and, and toys and tie-ins. So, yeah, it may be that it's worth it, but Paramount cares about the movie side of things unless they get a cut of these other bits. I don't know exactly how that works. So it, it, it does need to be a little cheaper. Yeah. And all of this is confusing because it's in this idea of a, a, the these movies that they were talking about were all made in a COVID high-cost time where things were more expensive due to the pandemic sure. and the box office has absolutely collapsed. The, so who knows what's going to happen to movies, right? Will these guys all go bankrupt? Um, will Barbie save them all and lead to a giant resurgence? It's unclear. Um, and, and so the D and D movie will have to somehow play off of all of that to try to survive. It's complicated. Yeah, and this doesn't even take into account this this series, right? The streaming series that is supposed to be in production um, that we haven't really heard much about since. So, yeah, uh, right, that may add some either either if it's popular, give another reason to try again, or if it doesn't do well, a reason to just wash your hands of the whole idea of having D and D based. Uh, streaming or movies so yeah we'll see yeah gen con by the time this show drops gen con will be just a day away it's coming mm -hmm. this weekend thursday through sunday i will be there mostly conscious i would say uh anything going on at gen con that has caused you to take interest teos well, you know, last show we were kind of saying like, where is the darn schedule? And I think the day before our show released, we recorded on Monday and on Tuesday, D&D finally provided the schedule. So on D&D Beyond, you can find a, a sort of blog post by Wizards with the schedule, which has what the Magic the Gathering schedule did and a little more, plus a lot of apologies around how all the, most of these events are sold out, which I thought was kind of hilarious. Um, so, you know, we'll see how it goes. I think one thing that I looked at, like, it is great to see D&D back at Gen Con. Uh, and we talked about this last episode. But, you know, one of the things was, hey, we, we've heard the community. We are going to make uh, staff available. 
And looking at the schedule, I didn't see where that's the case. Right. So I didn't see obvious, clear meet and greets or uh, talk to us. I do hear that there's a summit being planned. It sounds like it's mostly about for, for companies that are there. So like sort of partner level type things um, is, is the emphasis this time, I think. Um, but it's unclear. You know, there hasn't been anything publicly stated. But there aren't obvious like, you know, Chris Perkins is going to be playing D&D in the AL area or anything like that. So I hope, hope those kinds of things happen because that was the part that I thought was really missing. I didn't think that what was missing was, oh, D&D is going to have some people stream a game at Gen Con. That's not what I thought was missing from the Gen Con picture. Um, and it is nice to have some seminars, but there's a lot more that, that you know, there are different types of things that I'd like to see the staff involved in. Yep. So I I am going to be walking around the show more than I usually do. Usually I'm just heads down running games. So I'm going to be strolling about talking to people and I'm going to be taking some notes. So I'll be able to talk about it more intelligently, hopefully uh, next week. The DMs Guild has clarified its artificial intelligence policy. The DMs Guild has seen a ton of products that are AI generated. There was a great outcry. And so it finally released an updated policy. At this time, the DMs Guild will not accept standalone artwork products that utilize AI-generated art. So stock art, token packs, maps, portraits, miniatures, etc., if they are solely AI-generated, will not be able to uh, be sold. AI-generated art will be permitted in rulebooks and adventures, but it must be tagged as such. And then if there are titles that do not comply, they will be subject to removal from the marketplace and repeat offenders will have their publishing permissions revoked. Uh, what are your thoughts, Mr. Abadia? It's nowhere close to perfect, um, but it's at least a start because what's starting to happen here and in other places too is there are just people who realize, oh, wait, I can profit. And they just have their... AI of choice spit out endless amounts of images and then they just create packages and they're just starting to be, you know, endless numbers of products that were just on there full of AI generated NPCs, AI generated tokens, AI generated maps. And it's all just, you know, filling that kind of area there with very, very little look for quality. There was, there's also been a lot of AI generated products where it's an AI generated source book or class guide or whatever, because all of these AIs are getting good enough to create something that's kind of like a subclass. And sometimes might have, you know, first blush look like a decent subclass. And then you start looking at it closely and realize the problems with it. Um, so it was just, it was junking up the place. And, and it's the exact opposite of what the DMs Guild needs now. The DMs Guild does not need an overwhelming amount of low quality material. So I'm glad to see them at least put their foot down on, on, you know, someone would have to mix in some real things along with the AI stuff, which then makes that more expensive and perhaps cuts down on that behavior. We, we shall have to see. Mm -hmm. We have information about top sellers in crowdfunding. So there were two stories last week. The first came from an article on EN World looking at the top TTRPG crowdfunders of all time. Uh, EN, World is, EN World is constantly looking at Kickstarters and reporting on them. So what they did was they took the 
top Kickstarters, as reported by Kickstarter, remove board games, minis, or other types uh, to reveal whether the top companies in t- tabletop role-playing games. Not surprisingly, Magpie Games comes out at the top uh, at $10.3 million, uh, because of the their Avatar game. We look. We uh, we have free league and free aligan, which uh, is I think it's like free league in yeah in Swedish in uh, Swedish or something. Uh, so they are the top. If you add those two, because they have different accounts. So if you add them together, then they are the top, and everyone else drops down a spot. But since they have two Kickstarter accounts, they are considered separate. Um, Monty Cook Games comes in second. At nine point eight million, uh, Richard Thomas, Thomas of Onyx Path, Hit Point Press, and Cobalt Press round out the top five. We have some other notables. We have MCDM at seventh, Savage Worlds at eighth, Goodman Games at eleventh, Ghostfire Gaming at twelfth, Nord Games at nineteenth. Uh, I, I do want to say uh, that Ghostfire has its own account. It also has an account called Eldermancy that it's a partnership. So Ghostfire does a lot of partnerships with other companies. If you add those partnerships together with Eldermancy, with the Dungeon Dudes, with XP to level three, Ghostfire actually comes in at nine million, wow. which would move it up just below Monte Cook Games. Now it's it's all separate accounts between, with all those partnerships. So, uh, but I, I just I just want to point that out to show yeah. that Ghostfire is is uh has its little ectoplasmic paws uh in a lot of <laughs> of different uh kickstarter products uh what what are what are, what are some of your thoughts on this Teos? Yeah, it, it's fascinating stuff and really interesting to look at if you look at the overall projects in in gaming then you see like come on is number one steamforge games awaken realms dwarven forge is next uh then wormwood gaming reaper mm-hmm. miniatures is at 12th so it's nice to kind of what Ian World did that was really nice is break out the what is really an RPG project versus right. what is primarily miniatures or something else or primarily a board game, but has a, a, a role playing game component and then didn't count those. Right. Um, so some of it is, you know, arguable, but but it's nice to kind of compare and look at that. Um, it, it's it's a real strength in that this industry was incapable of those kinds of numbers, just a relatively short time away uh so this really represents a huge change to look you know like something monte cook games which is a relatively small company that's a really nice amount of money to do so that they can do the things they do like offer healthcare to their staff uh really good healthcare and benefits and and leave and all kinds of things so that's hopefully what we're talking about here is right that that kickstarter can hopefully enable this over time or any kind of crowdfunding platform can enable this over time for all these companies to have great pay, great employees and all of that. It's not easy. I, you know, we know that we know that Monty Cook isn't sitting there, you know, uh, on, on gold toilets. Like it's, it's difficult, but it is at least tenable. Whereas not too many years ago, it was not tenable. And so this is, this is great. Yeah, it was, it was fun to read and, and see that growth, but also show how, peripheral stuff right those minis and and things actually sell more than than games or at least revenue wise yeah Um, the second bit of news was from the youtube channel roll for combat 
that shared some book sales data. The data comes from BookScan, which tracks the sales of all books sold in the U.S. through big or two big box stores. So this doesn't include direct sales, digital sales, smaller gaming stores, comic book stores, or Amazon. And uh, I'm going to let you take over from there because uh, sure. Yeah, there's there's a UCLA study that said that BookScan might be 75% of all retail sales, but as the video noted. It's hard to know whether that's true in tabletop. I, I would guess not. Um, and I and I kind of guessed at some numbers down below. But but this is an interesting case because this book scan data and on the video link in our show notes on the video, they walk through and share kind of the actual screen with all these results. Uh, and I geeked out on this to I mean, I, I don't know how many hours I spent on this a lot <laughs> looking at all this and analyzing, thinking about it. Like tying into our previous discussion, uh, the Dungeons Dragons Honor Among Thieves, The Road to Neverwinter, a $30 product, which is a, a novel, uh, has sold 16,771 copies to date uh, through BookScan. So some other percentage beyond that in gaming stores or other places. But for a product like this, this might be, you know, 75% of its sales. Um, and, and then, so, you know, that's when you talk about that movie effect, right? Well, you get 16, 17,000 sales of this thing in a relatively short amount of time. And then you have like five other products. Well, that can be worth it. Right. Um, but back to kind of the core RPG stuff, the player's handbook is the top seller with over 1.5 million sales. And it's currently selling about 2000 per week in these channels. This is also interesting to note because one of the things that D and D has that I don't know that it's included in here. They often have specific wizards have specific deals to sell directly to big box stores versus the normal way they sell to box stores. I don't know if that's considered direct or if that's considered big box stores. So it could be higher even at those same places. Hard to say. Um, mm. After the place handbook, we have players handbook. We have the starter set with a million copies sold to date, selling around two hundred a week. The DMG has a total of 823,000, Monster Manual 780,000, then it's Essentials, Xanathar's, Tasha's, with, Tasha's has a 347k. Top Adventures, Curse of Strahd with 147,000, followed by Dragon Heist, Horde of the Dragon Queen, Yawning Portal, Saltmarsh, Rhyme, Tomb at 82,000. Some really interesting things like Spelljammer is 84,000, but drops really quickly after getting in huge initial sales of 47,000 in the first four weeks. And then it really slows down. Was that because of bad word of mouth? Who knows, right? Um, there's absolutely no impact from the OGL when you look at these charts. So you look at the period of time where people are talking about the OGL, nothing. The movie did bump three uh, things up. So um, you see this bump of, I think it was about 1,000 copies per week in the player's handbook for a while, due to the, right around the time the movie releases. Um, the 5e player's handbook has sold about three times what the 3e player's handbook sold in these same channels, which is impressive. Tasha's in its first deal year sold twice as many copies as what the player's handbook sold in its first year, showing the growth of the game, which is really neat. Um, Critical Role yeah. doesn't have a strong effect, which I was really surprised. So Wild Mount is 115, but you know Eberron is higher than that. Ravnica is pretty close to that. 
there's so many fascinating things. And one of the things that came out of this is two big questions that I had. One is like, well, what, what are the real numbers? Like, what can we extrapolate from this? And there's one little piece of data that I've noted elsewhere on my blog where in an interview, I think on Dragon Talk, Stan, uh, who is often a, a kind of part-time employee of Wizards of the Coast, said that uh, in, in 2017, the Player's Handbook had sold 800,000 copies. And I've heard other sources say about a million at that time. So somewhere between 800 to a million had been sold in 2017. And if you look at what BookScan in these screenshots showed at 2017, this would suggest that the book scan numbers are about a quarter of all sales. And so then you'd take that, you know, 1.5 million and you'd multiply by four to know the number of, of player handbooks that are out there. So maybe 6 million copies have been sold, which as book publishing goes is really good. Um, the, mm -hmm. the video, the folks in the video are sort of saying like our industry is so small. These numbers are really small and kind of pathetic, but I don't, I don't think they actually are. From a number of things one is that if you multiply them by four that is pretty strong um and the consistency of it because there are so many products you know, it's one thing to say like oh i'm the obamas i wrote a book it's really big but these are a lot of books like this list goes on and on when they're scrolling through this in the video dnd even just for 5e has so many products sean that that overall volume is really really quite significant so I don't know. What do you think? I've yapped for a while. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, it is small when you compare it to other things, but it's not small when you compare it to itself from 10 years ago, from 20 years ago, yeah. from 30 years ago, et cetera. Uh, and so it's that growth that is um, to have a book like Tasha's sell more than the play within its first year than the player's handbook did in its first year unbelievable yeah unbelievable you know that that we call it the death spiral right the role-playing game death spiral yeah. of each book selling less and less and less and this selling more is something that if you had told me 10 years ago when 5e came out that that would happen i would have i would have bet my mortgage sure on it that there's no way that could have ever happened and it did uh which gives me hope that this industry and this hobby that I thought was certainly dying mm -hmm. may not be. Yeah. And it, 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 it gives this pessimistic heart a little bit of hope. Uh, yeah. Like, people really do forget games. that we, you know, back in say third edition, we're so sure that this hobby was dying. And that these were the last gasps and, and we were all going to age out and nobody knew was coming in. There was no diversity. It was the same old people playing. And, and this is right wild. I mean, 4E saw some growth, things like gaming stores through the Encounters program. But 5th edition, its spread is unbelievable. And these numbers are unbelievable compared to anything before. It gets important to keep in context that there are many third-party role-playing game companies out there that can't outsell the original Dungeons and Dragons sets mm -hmm. back in the 70s. Like those have higher sales numbers than yeah. a lot of third party sales, right? And that's that's where you just look at and you're like, our industry is going nowhere, right? But it's fifth edition, it's this Kickstarter crowdfunding, like that's where we've seen the industry has been able to outdo itself and reach people in ways that you couldn't just through store shelves, right? And so, yeah, all win.
<laughs> exactly. Speaking of winning, that is our news for the week. Let's get into our main topic for this week here on Mastering Dungeons, and that is Chapter 6 of the Dungeon Master's Guide Between Adventures, specifically focusing this week on downtime. Because we love ourselves some downtime here at Mastering Dungeons. <laughs> yes, we do. We love our dungeons and we love to master them, but we also love mastering downtime. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to spend uh, a full part of the episode here focusing specifically on that. So before we talked about DM advice for between adventures like transitions and foreshadowing plot seeds, taking session notes, but the downtime is where our heart is because 5e introduced this downtime system right in the player's handbook and then it expanded in the Dungeon Master's Guide and then went on to be refined in Xanathar's <laughs> and then expanded upon by a couple of up-and-coming young writers in the Acquisitions Incorporated book to uh, flesh out some franchise rules. So it, we've seen an evolution in Wizards products of downtime and what it can be used for. And in fact, in that uh, Acquisitions Incorporated book, we call downtime the fourth pillar of D&D. Because it has the ability to capture the imagination and the uh, creativity of both game masters and players in a way that a full pillar of the game can. And so we are going to now talk about what the DMG says about it and then maybe expand on it a bit to show how it evolved after the Dungeon Master's Guide was created. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to let you step in there, Teos. Well, I want to say two things about it before we go into the details of what the DMG says, just from that kind of larger picture. One interesting thing about downtime is that it is not in the SRD. Um, so we don't see a lot of third-party products deal with it. And it's arguable to what extent you can use downtime if you're not making an official product. Uh, but even in official products, we don't see a lot of them take downtime into consideration, which is really a shame. Downtime, in a lot of ways, is sort of like skill challenges, where it was a new system introduced by an addition, imperfect and rough gem in its form. But the people who could really figure out how to do a lot with it, amazing effects on their games. And, and I wish we saw it more in Adventures. You do see it in Saltmarsh. You see it in a couple other places. But I, I wish we saw it more. Uh, acquisitions incorporated, of course, we really like every chapter of the adventure has a downtime section. Um, but but it, it, it is a rough gem there that I hope can become more standard. And maybe the new DMG will help do that. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. Well, let's let's talk about what the point of downtime activities are, according mm -hmm. to the Dungeon Master's Guide. It says the campaign benefits when characters have time between adventures to engage in other activities, allowing days, weeks, or months to pass between adventures stretches the campaign over a longer period of time and helps to manage the character's level progression, preventing them from gaining too much power too quickly. And I thought that was an interesting, an interesting point because for 
I don't want to say a majority, but for a lot of players, that gaining of power is the point of the game, even more than any stories that come out of it. And I, I don't, that's not a judgment statement. That is just the way it is. We saw that in third edition, right? Living uh, Greyhawk. It was just a race to get the next level and the next power and the next thing until people realize that the the prize they win for being the highest level character, the first character to level 20, is that you have nothing else to play. And yeah. still, it's that, that one segment of the player population, which I love, is let get me to the next level. I want to do the next thing. I want to show my build. And this is saying in a way that really hasn't come out and said it before that maybe it's better to go slower. Maybe it's better to have story happening between those times when you are leveling up your character. That's and I enjoy true. that. And the, I think DMs and players need to hear that that could be a thing. Yeah. I, I, and that is super interesting. I also think it's interesting that this, doesn't include a lot of the things that I would say are the huge benefits of downtime for me. So to me, when I think of downtime and why I love it, it's because it allows me to, uh, it allows the players to express themselves and interact with the game in ways they can't other way, otherwise do so, right? Otherwise do. Um, downtime is like a method by which the players can reach out into that campaign and exert their influence in a totally unique and different way, right? They can uncover secrets. They can gain the benefit of factions. They can train a companion they found. They can just, you, you name it. They can do so many things, right? Uh, we're going to do a heist, so I'm going to do downtime to figure out, uh, you know, how to put a plant in the place, right? Like any of these kinds of things. Like downtime just has so much reach. I want to build up a place and own it in Chult. I want to uh have a crew of pirates that go around and and you know create loot for me like there are just so many things you can do and downtime can become the vehicle for that and i think this is another case where the dmg didn't exactly know what it's creating at this stage uh in fact the, the section before this is recurring expenses and it just sort of lists like the cost of living if you're doing various activities or own businesses and so on and and downtime seems to just kind of transition after that because they're saying well maybe you have these other things that you're involved in and and so we're kind of mm -hmm. rolling and figuring those out and then getting back to the adventure but but to me the true benefit of downtime is when you as a dm can see how to integrate this in regular intervals into a campaign to give your players far greater reach and influence over the game that they're in and you can see this evolution of what downtime is or could be by how it is expressed throughout the books. At first, in the player's handbook, when it talks about downtime, it says, here are some things your player, your characters might do. Crafting. And it's not even magic items. It's creating, mm -hmm. creating goods. And it's, it's, it's cool, but it's not story, really heavily story related. It's not looking forward so much yeah. as just 
okay, I can do this thing. Practicing a profession. It's it's a way to say, cut scene. Oh, I'm I'm a baker. I'm baking. I put my sword down and I'm I'm baking. And it's sort of like like I said, bookkeeping, recuperating. Mm-hmm. If you have a dis- long-term disease, how do you get rid of it? Researching. And here we get the first hint of maybe thinking ahead a little bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and training. Uh, it's You want to go up a level? Well, you might have to pay some money and spend some time to do that. So it's really still more character-focused and more, more bookkeeping than it is story. But then we get in the Dungeon Master's Guide a little bit more heft and a little bit more direction not a lot mm-hmm. but a little bit more uh do you agree yeah yeah absolutely i think the okay and in fact if we look at how each of these activities we're going to talk about is built one of the things that's really indicative to me is they are built differently with um different implications for the game different spans of time there's no it's as if when they were creating downtime at this point in time, they just thought, well, let's have a rule for X and let's have a rule for Y. But they didn't think of downtime as an entity. Xanathar's mm-hmm. builds closer to that. It doesn't fully create a pattern, but there are enough that you can see, hey, you know what? There are a number of cases here where now I can really see how I will role play around this. Now I can really see a, a common like three act structure to the downtime, right? Sort of three checks, three things that are happening as I try to do this activity. And you can come up with a sort of more of a formula by which you could apply it to the campaign and the pace of the game. I first used downtime extensively when running the Acquisitions Incorporated Adventure. And I started by doing it one of two ways. I would either create a pick list for the players saying, here are some things that that you can do, named things you choose. Then as they got more used to it, I just asked the characters, what do you want to do? And then I would find the category that fit best. Or if not, I would create my own category and do it that way. But everything between the DMG, the player's handbook, uh, Xanathar's and the Acquisitions Incorporated book, pretty much everything they wanted to do was in there in some way. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I thought spoke well. Yeah. So I used downtime. Well, my first exposure to downtime was really through Adventures League, which had in its core rules from the very beginning, day one of 5e, it had um, uses for downtime. So things like you can learn a, a skill, right? Which is, which is one of the available options. And, but they would just translate it to spend X points of downtime that you've earned. And now you just have that skill or spend downtime to go up a level because you want to play with your buddies at a higher level. And so we can just assume that that time has passed. So it was all very mechanical, right? And it was really when, uh, I started to run, adventures and and then later when I was thinking about the construction of acquisitions incorporated where it was like well what is it that these rules are really trying to do and what is it that Xanathar's advances and then I agree with you it becomes a really nice interplay where you get to say to the players ideally with prompts from the campaign 
what do you guys want to do, right? So in the acquisitions incorporated venture, like one of the one that I remember that was really nice was, you know, they had rescued uh, a creature that was a kind of, you know, magical creature. And they had also rescued a, um, a small humanoid that was potentially an NPC. And so I said, hey, you've got these two entities. Um, you've got these questions that I've heard you say about what's happening in the campaign. Um, you may have personal goals. Let's go around and you all tell me what you want to do. And so they all kind of agreed on what each of them was doing, right? So one of them, for example, wanted to train this magical animal and help it find a home. Another one wanted to train the companion that they had just kind of learned this humanoid. Someone else wanted to research what's going on and so on and so forth. Right. Then I also, because it was part of the, mm -hmm. the franchise rules, I said, well, you've got this business you're all trying to run. Who wants to spend their downtime helping that business? And what are you doing about it? And the result is a really rich integration between the players and the campaign world in great ways. Right. And this was a middle school group. So one of the guys would do things like I want to research types of cheese, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but. You know how happy right. that player is that they get to do this in the game, right? It's not just we end a dungeon, we right. go to the next dungeon. They get to, and they went to a cheese fair and they met one of the acquisitions incorporated guys who turns out to be really into cheese. And boy, that player could not have been happier. Did they accomplish anything of substance for their character? Yes, <laughs> not for the campaign, but boy, they, they love it. And everybody had a good laugh. Right. We all had a blast, right? It was great. Yeah. And what's magical about that is like any sort of creative endeavor, when you get a focus, mm. you find ways to use that focus in the art that you're creating. And it's the same thing with this. As soon as cheese becomes an important part of this character, cheese can now appear in a lot of different places, even though it's not in the adventure itself. But if the, not just the DM, but if the players are are on task yeah then cheese becomes an integral part of not just that character story but the entire campaign absolutely cheese, uh, cheese, and cheese. it's not difficult to make that happen yep the same uh humanoid that your players rescued was rescued by my players mm -hmm. and he uh no one was able to train him uh, they tried but failed <laughs> uh -huh. during one downtime. So it was it was uh, considered that he maybe needed training in something else. So he was sent to Phoenix University of Waterdeep, uh, where he uh, engaged in a different kind of training that the characters and the business paid for, and ended up paying great dividends in the end. That's awesome. Uh, so, right, all all of these things are there for your characters to integrate more with the story and the world that you're creating. And it's all through this mechanism of downtime, which can be used in a variety of ways. Yeah, and before we go into the specifics, I just wanna say, I know that this is hugely popular with the DMs because the I wrote a series of blogs, um, blog articles about downtime, and those are some of the more popular articles on, on my blog. So I know there are a lot of DMs out there who are seeking the guidance of how to use this, want a consolidated list of all the activities, um, want ideas for how to approach them in a cohesive manner. So, so I know it's an important topic and one that's caught on, right? DMs see this in the DMG and go, 
hey, I want to do more with this. And mostly, I think, because it it is another outlet for, for creativity, but it's a very important way for game masters to be able to draw players into the story who might not otherwise want to engage as much with the story and the world. Because if they want a plus two flame tongue to fight a white dragon, and you don't just hand it to them, but you actually make them use downtime to yeah. find it, to uh, bargain for it, to maybe go on a side quest in order to convince the owner of it to to give it to them or sell it to them. Yeah, that player is who would normally be just like, no, just give me my weapon is now very focused on this part of the story. Yeah, and you know, another place where this has come up a lot is, is DMs will run um, Dragon Heist. And for the, dro the Troll Skull portion, this will come up because it's in the adventure, but then it sort of disappears. And, and I think what a lot of DMs realize is, wait a minute, that kind of concept was really cool. Why were I leaving this behind? Uh, I want to keep this going, right? And and I want to keep, and the players are saying like, well, I want to keep developing this tavern that I inherited, right? Or that I received. I want to keep, I don't want this to just be a chapter in the book and we forget about it for the rest of the game, right? And and and, and I, I think that's something that's neat when players want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, in, in the Acquisition Incorporated uh, campaign I ran, we would play a chapter of the adventure and they would level, they would get downtime. And then we would spend two or three sessions, not just a, a single session of roll the die. Okay, you gain 20 gold, you lose 20 gold. This was, what is everyone doing? The rolls would trigger positive or negative things. Oh, you want to open one of the mines that's been closed. Okay, great. Give me some rolls. You're going to hire someone to go in and make sure it hasn't been tapped out yet. Well, the best uh, assayer in the land is in this town over here. Okay, you go find. Well, mm -hmm. he is in trouble with the local law, and so you need to deal with that. The local sheriff is a bad, bad dude, and he's blackmailing this assayer to work for him. So you need to deal. And we would have almost, I would say, more adventures doing downtime. Actual uh -huh. role playing, dice, combat, than than actual playing of of the published adventure <laughs> uh, at certain points, which was which was amazing and fun. That's really cool. Yeah, and and that's one of the nice things about downtime too that I I, I think the DMG doesn't even know to address because it's before anybody was using it is that it really scales well to whatever you want to do with it. Like you can be the kind of DM and the kind of player. Uh, that says, you know, I want to go into the local cage match and just beat some dudes up for money. And you can do a couple of rolls and, hey, here's the money you earned or lost based on this activity. Or you could say, great, you know, you you first you have to talk your way into the the pit match. So, you know, let's talk about how you do that and let's set up the scene and let's talk, to, talk through it. And now you arrive and you see that there are already some contestants in there and try to do some talking, you learn, hey, here are the people who place the heavy bets and here's what, here's how this thing works. So if you want to influence, you want to be successful, it's not just about punching in the ring. You've got to manipulate the crowd and the big betters. And so how do you do that? Okay, you've set that up. 
And now your third thing that you're doing, because I like thinking of these in three act structures, which the Xanathars mm -hmm. often uses, you know, yeah. now you're actually in the cage match uh, facing the competition. And maybe it's just one big fight or maybe it's several and we build it up. And that can be a really short activity if we go through it fairly quickly. Or as you said, it could be, you know, a, a decently long time um, that we are interacting with this and playing it out to some extent. But at the end of it, it can be really satisfying, right? We could have been just a, a cage match kind of scene, uh, very quickly executed, or we could be the type of situation where now this person has met the movers and shakers of the underworld, the noble that comes to the pit fight every week to place bets because they love to, you know, come down and mix it up with the common folk and the seedy side of town, right? Just a lot of stuff can happen. And we can use that in just infinite ways in our game. So I, I love what downtime can be. I'm so glad it's in this book. I wish it were updated. And I'll be curious to see how they update this, whether they can make it speak to all those things, right? Exactly. Uh, so let's talk about what the DMG says about downtime. I've given you the overall thing. What are some things that you can do? What are some downtime activities? The first is building a stronghold where we get a chart that gives us construction time and construction costs, which is good information. The next step is what do you do with this stronghold? <laughs> is it even worth building a stronghold if it's not going to be attacked by a villain riding a dragon at some point later? Mm -hmm. I don't think so, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's fun to have a stronghold. Uh, what benefits does it give a group? What drawbacks other than having the upkeep of it are there, right? Those sorts of things are the meat of what downtime can be. Uh, so the skeletons here, we just need to, to put the meat on it. Yeah. You want to take the next one? Well, yeah. And, and I'll add that, that, uh, this is why we created the franchise system for acquisitions incorporated is, is to look at a building as much more than this stronghold you're going to set over on a hill and then be just in dungeons, right? Like whether it's an organization, it's a business, it's a castle, like you can use that franchise system to do a lot more than this building stronghold rule. Um, the next one is carousing. And this is one that that's actually pretty good. And I think really it gets revised later, but but it, it, it's, it gets into that kind of concept of what we want out of downtime a little more. Commonly. Um, so carousing is the idea that you're going to go out and, you know, meet people and uh, influence and so on. Um, and and so you have things like, you know, the results uh, on this table can be uh, you earn modest winnings from gambling and recuperate your lifestyle expenses. Or you're caught up in a whirlwind romance and roll to see what happens from that. It, you know, it's a little haphazard in how it's set up, but there's some neat concepts here of, of what might happen that I think really speak to those possibilities of the activity. You make an enemy. Yeah, in 2012, in 2012, when the game Dungeon World was created, one of their moves is Carouse. Mm. And in it, um, you can you make the roll like you always do in, in these 2d6, uh, you roll a 2d6 and you know 10 plus, you get to choose three of these benefits. Seven to nine, you get to choose one. If on a miss, you still get to choose one, but quote, things get really out of out of hand, and the GM will say how. And I thought, okay, there, there's an indie game, right? There's an indie game doing this. 
Two years later, the DMG comes out with it, their carousing downtime, which you read a couple things, but here's one of them you might roll. You make an enemy. The, mm. This person, business, or organization is now hostile to you. The DM determines the offended party, and you decide how you offended them. And so this is like indie game here, right? We're into this indie yeah. storytelling sort of thing where you fail, here's here's the consequence you get to tell a little bit of the story the dm gets to tell a little bit of the story um and that's so that's from that's from the dungeon master's guide and i, I that's where we can move with D if we are very good designers and teach the, the uh, game masters and the players how to use these to tell great stories uh, next, we have crafting magic items. It's pretty much like it says. Uh, you you get to decide what item you want. You have a certain budget that you have to spend. If it's a an item that can cast spells, you need to be able to have a spell slot and that spell to cast or get help in making it. And then after a certain amount of time, based on the rarity of the item and the gold piece value that's associated with that you can spend that many downtime days to do it and i think they try to i help love out, this when it's done well just to say they try to help out the dm by saying hey you might need special ingredients and then those become adventures to reclaim them right and so they they try to give a little bit of like in case your players are reading this book and say, hey, I want to craft this thing. You could say, well, sure. But now you need, you know, the feather of the phoenix and the whatever. And OK, yep. you know, a little more work and it, to get them to earn it, in which case they're going through activities that might have granted them that kind of item to begin with. So it's all fair. <laughs> yep. Right. And what the DMG needs to tell game masters here is. Be very wary of giving players exactly the magic item they want, or worse yet, creating their own magic item that's not in the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, because down that path lies madness and or broken character uh, power. So always be wary and understand the consequences of giving the exact right magic item to the exact right character yeah. and as much as you can to the extent that the players and yourself want to tie everything to a story make them get the formula for building this acts of power and have special ingredients that they need to find and tie it into the story that the rest of the campaign is telling um, use the idea that you have story beats and so one beat could be doing the goody goody thing but you need to get a little dark if you want to get the ingredients for this item or vice versa right maybe your characters are all dark but the only way to get this item mm. is to work for the church of virtue and they're the ones that have the formulas for the magic items in their vault. So you need to do those things in order to uh, get these items. Anything 
Anything else on that? Or are you ready to move on to the next one? Yeah, the next one is gaining renown. And this, we don't have to go into great detail because it really uses the renown rules from chapter one, uh, which uh, don't come up that often. But if you want to, it's a good example of if you want to have a specific type of campaign, downtime is a great way to enable that by saying, hey, go off and spend your downtime time gaining the renown uh, with this organization and you can have now higher renown with them and that's that's great right so if you want to get in with the nobles here's your mechanic for one way you can do it is by gaining renown with the nobility right Mm -hmm. and you can tie these together the 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 uh the organization that you are trying to gain renown and holds the key to the magic item formulas so you need to have more renown in order to get that. And you have to do certain things in order to gain that renown. Uh, so you could play around with this in so many different ways. Uh, next is performing sacred rites. So if you spend at least 10 downtime days performing sacred rites, uh, marriages, baptisms, you know, uh, sacred rites, as it says, um, you can gain inspiration at the start of each day for the next 2d6 days sure why not yeah. it's a mechanical thing that some people may may mm-hmm. be happy with you could use that for anything you could use that gain inspiration for 2d6 days for running a business for sowing rumors for doing right. anything um, but it's it's a tool there to, uh, at your disposal the next one's running a business uh, and, running uh, a business yeah this is one that I kind of got to redo somewhat for the Acquisitions Incorporated, uh, where we we have a running a franchise activity um, that tries to make it a little more dynamic. But but it's a neat concept because what it's saying is if you've got something that you own and you want to see how it does against its cost, and that could be your castle or whatever, you've got a, something that that's a, a gold drain, then that you may want to make up for that gold drain. So here's the way that you do that. And so uh, what was nice about this is, as I said in that example before of the acquisitions incorporated campaign, you know, it could be like, hey, we all have these various goals, but someone's got to take care of the fact that we've got this business we're running, this organization we're running, and because you're going to roll and you may suffer a big loss or you may gain, but if you act are active in it, then you can boost your chances, and that's where I think it particularly gets interesting. Uh, instead of just you know rolling, that you are able to to help it a bit. But yeah, so the core rule here is you roll percentile dice and add the number of days that you spent on the activity, and that boosts your chance of getting the high results that can get you a profit. And, and that's the core concept. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I think it's pretty solid for being as simple as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, we have selling magic items. So like these other things, there are a few charts where you can figure out how long it would take you to find a buyer, depending on the rarity, and then how much you can get based on that rarity and a die roll to see if you can buy it or you can find a buyer, either a regular buyer or a shady buyer. Yeah. And, uh, if the buyer is shady, it's up to you whether the sale creates legal complications for the party later, right? That, I love that. Let's take that one more step, right? Yeah. Talk, just give me two examples 
for me because I'm a I'm a new DM. I'm a new storyteller. Yeah. I need to know what those legal complications might be. Uh, but that's that's where we want to move. That's where we want to get a little more story and uh, creativity. Uh, yeah. supporting creativity in, in these rules. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Next, next. Oh, sorry. Any, anything else? No, on selling no, that's items? great. I was just going to say sewing rumors kind of tries to do that too, where it is the idea of swaying the public opinion over somebody and, and changing the attitudes of sort of a populace, which is a really neat concept to have in these rules, which I think. Yep. Oh yeah, for sure. I, when we ran the Ack Inc. Uh, campaign, one thing you can do is become the mayor. And so I said during at one point, OK, we're, we just finished a, a short uh, adventure. You have some downtime. What do you want to do? Uh, what this character is running for mayor, remember? And someone went, I want to make rumors about the other candidates. <laughs> and I'm like, well, there just happens to be a specific downtime exactly for this sowing rumors. And it was perfect. And they they did the thing. There was some they did well, but there were complications that ended up leading to a whole other adventure. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 great. Great stuff. Absolutely. Uh, what else we have? What other downtime? So the last one is training to gain levels. Uh you know, depending on how you look at it, this is just kind of a tip of the hat to old school ways of playing where sometimes it would say and some DMs would use these rules where you had to train before you could gain your level. Uh, you could even look at the concept of where like the druid would have to defeat the other druid or the monk would have to defeat the other monk that would, when you got to high levels. It's sort of this kind of concept of, of earning your levels. Um, you spend time and money to pull it off. And it's fine. I think what's more interesting is is to try to get beyond just this mechanics to what it signifies, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, it signifies the character's place in the world and the story that's taking place in that world. And if you can have, there can only be one monk of levels, you know, 12 to 20, not only is it important for that monk character, it can become important for all of the other characters to help that monk character along the way. While they might not be able to actually fight the combat, the hand-to-hand -hand combat that must take place, they can certainly do things to get the character in a position to succeed. And that can become an important part like I've said over and over again, I feel like not only of the individual stories, but of the overall campaign, because maybe the the bad uh, the the uh, villains are trying to stop the monk from gaining that level, right. from becoming that person. So if if now we've got a whole maelstrom of story and plot and training and leveling happening, uh, all all at once yeah it can be a lot of fun uh and, and yeah the next section here says creating downtime activities and it it's interesting because i i don't know that it, you know it just it's sort of loose guidelines and mm -hmm. so you know it's important to note for in case our listeners don't know that 
most of the activities that we've covered are obsolete now because Xanathar's came up with better ones found in, in Xanathar's Guide to Everything Chapter 2. Then you have the ones in Acquisitions Incorporated Chapter 2, which also greatly expand the list of what you can do. Between Xanathar's and Ack Inc., you're in really good shape. I should also note, every activity in the player's handbook has been replaced by a new version. So you can almost just ignore those and let your players know that. Um, right. But I've got uh, the following suggestion and how you run done downtime and, and sort of improvise it. And I've got blogs on this and a downloadable file, too, that groups everything together. Um, whenever, So the first thing is that in your campaign pacing, you want to have clear breaks. Um, and, and ideally with prompts. So we finish an activity like wilderness exploration. They finish the dungeon. They stop the cult that's underneath the you know, bowels of the sewers, whatever. Um, so now there should be natural questions that players will have as part of this, right? Okay, we got to this new town, but the wilderness beyond is unknown. Uh, we have these issues we're grappling with. You know, What was the cult trying to achieve? Those kinds of things. And you can specifically prompt your players for downtime now that there is this break in the action and provide them with some ideas of things they can do so they're not sitting there floundering. But also, they may have other goals they have. And you can prompt them also based on the things you know about them. Like if they have this backstory, right? I don't know what happened to my brother. You know, whatever is going on that they've written up, this is also a perfect time to pull those in. And then, uh, and of course, if they have a business or organization they run, then they're gonna, there's going to be that baseline. So you ask that players what they're all going to do, choose one of the listed downtime activities, or design your own. And in general, for creating a downtime activity, what I think of is it's going to involve a number of days. It's going to have a cost in gold. And because it's good to use player gold, they're always looking for ways to use up the character gold. Uh, and usually you're going to have one to three D20 checks to resolve the activity, probably skills. It is expected that at least eight hours are going to be spent on the activity for the day to count, but you don't have to make those days consecutive. And then one by one, you're going around and having those players spend gold, make the checks, and you're creating that narrative with them to the extent that they and you want to be a part of that, right? That you enjoy this kind of more indie-ish uh, story playing, as we were saying. Then you can really have that, set the scene, involve it. Maybe one person wants, you might have several people working together on activity and you can have that kind of interplay. Uh, and then in general, based on that result, you are adjudicating the, the level to which they are able to attain those things. And, and, and often what I do when I have a sort of three check set up, then I'm using those story arcs like I talked about before, right? Like, you know, the approaching the pit fighting, uh, assessing the competition and then actual the fight. Right. That creates a nice narrative out of it. And those three checks allow you to adjudicate the success of it overall. And you can use anything in Xanathar's as a sort of guideline of what does it mean to have good success and outcomes versus mediocre ones or failure. Um, and then you you have that piece. And then the last part is something that Xanathar, Xanathar's introduces around rivals. And so there is this possibility that a complication arises and maybe a rival is involved. So you sell the magic item. But in fact, someone else wants it. Uh, or you set, you buy a magic item, but you realize that actually it was stolen, right? Or you may not even realize it, but it was stolen, and that's the complication. So these kinds of bits, having a way that you can introduce those in there that don't feel like gotchas, but feel like rich story, makes downtime even bigger and more interesting to everybody involved. Yeah. Yeah. 
and weaving all of those disparate threads together tighter and tighter and tighter as the story progresses makes the world and the story all seem like one coherent thread rather than all of these disparate threads with six different disparate characters um, doing their own thing. They can do their own thing, but as you figure out who the villains are and as you figure out who the important NPCs are, those threads are going to start connecting and it will be a much richer campaign for it as the chapter told us at the beginning. Yep. So, uh, anything else, Teos, with, with this, or are we ready to shut down? Well, we have one question that came in, a listener question from Man and Martin that we can hit very quickly. And basically what they're saying is they're running Last Minds of Foundelver, and they had their artificer say, hey, I'd like to do some crafting, which, awesome, and the DM totally wanted to do this, but the adventure had them all on the clock trying to find an NPC friend of the party that was kidnapped. And so they're like, well, what do we do? Because there could be all this downtime, but there's no time for it. What do you do? Um, and, you know, should I just accept the lack of downtime or should I change the adventure? And I, I think that this was something that that um, we tried to do with with Acquisitions Incorporated, which specifically says that your franchise, your organization or business that you're a part of or own has employees and lets you direct people to do things for you. And I think that's an amazing piece of what downtime can do is, and, and, and a campaign can do is you've got these allies that someone else can take the downtime for you and, and carry out these pieces. Mm -hmm. And so if possible in a long running campaign, I love to use the franchise rules to create an organization that they're a part of. You can also use the patron system that appears in, in uh, Tasha's and uh, Ebron to, to then allow you to use these employees of yours and they're making the checks and seeing whether you can do this so that you can still be running after the bad guy or doing whatever else is doing, uh, but that can happen. What do you think, Sean? Oh, that's, that's a great point. Um, it gives you so much flexibility. Uh, to tell different stories at the same time you can take the focus and take the camera and move it over to mm -hmm. the the household staff who has been tasked to go out and do these things and let the players still roll the dice let the players role play their employees and get them into trouble and get them out yeah. of trouble and you know, sometimes the players will have to save their employees. Sometimes the employees might save the characters bacon, not necessarily in a battle sort of way, but uh, through a good die roll or a fortuitous circumstance where otherwise the players might not have gotten a piece of information that proves vital. Good. Okay, so you can focus that lens in the place that is most interesting at the moment to get the story across that you're trying to get across so i love i love that me too um, love it love it <laughs> it got yeah it got it got so much the the players got so invested in their uh, retainers that the next campaign was they played the retainers and I that's that the too. sort of thing that you want to to happen uh instant investment instant backstories for each of those characters already tied together uh 
so much good role playing stuff can ha- can move from there. So Perfect. highly enjoyable and very much recommended. Speaking of highly enjoyable and very much recommended, thank you out there to all of our listeners for putting up with our ramblings. We do so much appreciate your support, whether that support is moral or financial. And for our financial supporters, those who back our Patreon, we thank you. We thank our Master of Dungeon supporters. We give a special shout out to our Master of Realm supporters in our show notes. And to our Masters of the Multiverse patrons, this shout out is for you. Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad. Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Jim Klingler at AKA DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simonse, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you. If you would like to become a patron like those wonderful people, you can go to patreon.com slash mastering D&D. You can also leave a review via Apple Podcast, or you can subscribe to us via YouTube. Where can people find all of your excellent information, including stuff about downtime? Alphastream.org is your place. Uh, and I am really, I haven't opened the Twitter app since it became a giant X. Uh, so look for me mm-hmm. on Mastodon. I'm not really liking Blue Sky, but I am on there. And in fact, Mastering Dungeons is even on Blue Sky technically, but we're more just sending things out. Sean, where do we find you? Uh, all the places. Just go at Sean Merwin, Mastodon, X, Twitter. Uh, Blue Sky now, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Uh, I will answer questions anywhere. And you can always go to the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel and talk to us there. So we got up and we got downtime. What are we going to do now? Uh, I'd like to take the downtime activity of sleep, but unfortunately, my day job is calling. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm in this. I'm about to do the downtime activity of practice profession Ooh. so and hopefully i'll see some folks out there at gen con stop by and say hi hey, not me <laughs>